Hello, traders, analysts, and other followers of the energy industry. My name is Corey Stewart, and I'm a senior analyst with Refinitiv, your go-to partner for energy analysis and data. As always, I'm here with Jim Mitchell, Refinitiv's head of America's oil analyst, and we're going to take you through what's happening in energy in the Western Hemisphere, and actually today, a little bit of the world. Now, an important note, the opinions given by Jim, me, or any of our guests are our own and not necessarily those of Refinitiv or its parent company, the London Stock Exchange Group, also known as LSEG. Okay, so Jim, before we get to specific questions, uh, any initial thoughts? So the initial agenda for COP26 was coal, cars, cash, and trees. That sounded really nice on a soundbite. Then other groups kind of ruined the pithy marketing tag by adding methane reduction, net zero, and keep 1.5 alive. This, of course, referring to the effort to keep global temperatures to an increase of less than 1.5 degrees Celsius by 2050. Then came the nature-based solution lobby to get their voices heard and, of course, the carbon capture and storage effort around the world. The agenda was set. The sound bite destroyed. My hope for COP26 was twofold. They could reset the outrageous time expectations and rhetoric of this net zero campaign, and maybe that would help to alleviate some of the energy-related inflation that is being created by destroying the investment outlook for future energy projects. And two, the participants would recognize that governments and banks are merely two actors of this much, much bigger slate of participants that are needed to give this movement any shot at reality. In an age of inclusion, this event locked some participants out of meetings and listened to, but ignored others. So, Corey, what are your initial thoughts on the event? So, you know, I'm an energy market analyst. I mean, that's what I do. Energy markets are what I spend most waking hours thinking about. And for those out there in the industry, you also know that makes me a cartographer, an engineer, a meteorologist, geologist, and someone that wears a whole lot of other hats. It also makes me an armchair economist. And, you know, educationally, and per the State Bar of Texas, I'm also attorney in an, an active status. And maybe it's those last two points that make me a bit skeptical or even slightly pessimistic about the results of COP26. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I'm completely agnostic to the world's energy mix. I'll say that most people want energy to be as clean as it can possibly be, that we don't want to see the world warm and ecosystems weather and all the other parts of the parade of horribles that have been uh, painted for us to occur. But other than me being an energy analyst, I also don't want to have to think about how I'm going to afford something that is an absolute necessity. No one does. We decide that, at least in some areas of the world, that access to the Internet is a necessity. And I don't disagree, but for cooking, heating, cooling, and transportation when it's needed, say for those jobs that require physical presence on the job site, governments are going to be going to face a difficult time transitioning energy if it pushes energy prices higher. And I know I'm being a bit biased here in the U.S., but as both a large energy producer and consumer, I can tell you that history has not looked favorably favorably upon administrations where energy prices were an issue. Regardless of where to place blame, social, international, and other issues have taken a back seat in the mind of voters. When, it's, when a collective party, they are paying out larger portions of income when filling their gasoline tank and or heating and cooling their homes. There's also the glaring variable of enforceability. 
I think a lot of prognosticators see the arguments, excuse me, the agreements made, the plans, the shortfalls, and base forecasts, the world that COP26 will create. But it is, to some degree, basing the future outlook on inaccurate current data. If a law is passed in the U.S., for example, there are ways to enforce that law. It's obviously not always that clean, but there are mechanisms in place to promote the law's function. But here with COP26, we're talking about a group of sovereign nations. There are no mechanisms of enforcement, only goodwill and name and shame enforcement. No country really has to do anything. So I know we're going to dive deeper into questions, but those are my initial thoughts. Ignoring any issues with the energy sources we are attempting to transition to, the energy transition that COP26 aimed to move along, is still going to be very difficult. Hmm. So, Corey, can you highlight what actually came out of the meetings? Uh, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, you covered, covered this a little bit already, but, um, you know, for, for COP26. So, one, phasing down unabated coal power. And number two, for nations to come to the conference next year with more ambitious targets. Three, annual reporting about what commitments are being made to reduce emissions. Four, new rules around cross-border carbon credit trading. And five, probably the, the biggest one, uh, commitments to reduce methane emissions. And number six, agreements around net zero emission vehicles. And, and finally, one that's more important to us because of our, our O-Flow product, uh, declarations around new shipping routes, alternative fuels, et cetera, in shipping. So, uh, Jim, there were some elephants in the room. Can you highlight those? <laughs> yeah, it was a crowded room full of elephants. Four really caught my attention, though. Article 6, paragraph 20, loss and damage, and the dictatorial act of inclusion. I'll touch on each of these. However, the implications from each of these could be their own podcast. So starting with Article 6. Article 6 of the Paris Agreement is the structure of how each of the actors can and will account for emissions, trading of credits, and, of course, all the exemptions to the rules. This hot button was left untouched at COP21, which is where the Paris Agreement originated. So three sections of this article to consider. Section 6.2 lays out a draft text outlining a future structure for the carbon market. And it's nowhere near being implemented as there are far too many hurdles to even discuss within our time limits. But basically this is the accounting aspect of the Paris Agreement. Section 6.4 is the mechanism for eligible activities for emissions reductions, i.e., what are the measured emissions? For whom do they apply and who manages all of this? As one can imagine, the details of this section are many, the minutia immense, and nothing was solved here. This is the heart of what needs to be worked through if the Paris Agreement in any form has any shot of being implemented. Section 6.8 is the non-market mechanisms for emissions reductions. This section is currently undefined as to what that actually means. Needless to say, implementation is far off as we don't even know what to implement or when or how. Paragraph 20, uh, as Corey mentioned uh, previous, talks about the phase out of unabated coal power. India argued strongly and paragraph 20 got muted down from phase out to phase down of unabated coal power. And we'll talk about this a, a bit more. 
Loss and damage is a burn your hand off hot button. Many, many issues here. Nothing was even attempted at COP26. So this brings us to the lack of inclusion. There were about 39,000 participants at this event. 22,000 were governmental figures, 14,000 observers, and about 3,500 journalists. How many of this 39,000 understand the operational aspect of how to reduce CO2 or methane emissions? Without these folks, all the politicians and bankers in the world will just drain the world of scotch and make no real progress. <laughs> so, Corey, you know, even though we focus on liquid fuels in our daily jobs, coal is very present at the meetings. How do you see these outcomes affecting the markets? Yeah, great question. So, I, you know, I think of coal and liquids as part of an energy ecosystem that blends with one another to achieve the same goals. Yes, we as a team focus on liquid fuels, but for those listening that don't live in the U.S. Northeast, when I say liquid fuels, mobility power is probably the first thing that come to mind, cars and trucks. Of course, here in the U.S., we still have some in the way of home heating that's from heating oil, i.e. diesel, and there's some power generation out there, even in the U.S., that has the capability to use diesel or fuel oil to produce electricity. And I'm not just talking about small personal generation. You've heard it here. You've heard it elsewhere. It was easy to usher in the death of coal in the United States because of a couple things. Coal is primarily used for power generation. Metallurgical coal is used in steelmaking, contributing to produce something like 70% of the world's steel. Uh, it's used in some of the metals production and it's used in cement production. But again, primarily power gen. So natural gas prices started really seeing sustained level, low levels in the U.S., well, then it made economic sense to switch to natural gas. Economic sense because of uh, feedstock, but also economic sense because of the ease and low costs of substitution. 2011-2019, 17 coal-fired power plants in the U.S. were closed and replaced with new natural gas combined cycle plants. Now, when this happened, capacity of these you know, 17 replaced plants was nearly doubled because, well, better technology. But also during this period, 104 coal-fired plants were went through boiler conversions to natural gas and some other feedstocks were where it made sense. Most of these plants fully converted to natural gas, but a few maintained <clears throat> excuse me, the ability to continue burning coal when it was economically necessary to do so. And guess what? It's been a while, but recently it has made more economic sense to switch to coal. Natural gas prices up, coal prices stable, so were possible operators switched to burning coal. And I said, in regards to the U.S. deaths of coal, well, was it? I mean, sure, if you look at the last 70 years of data, coal peaked in 1988 at nearly 57% of the U.S. energy mix. But death? Well, in the more normal year that was 2019, coal still made up over 23% of the U.S.'s energy mix. It will continue to fall, but even after continuing its fall in 2020, this year, we'll see coal use at around 22% of U.S. energy. But hey, I'm talking about the U.S. here, and the U.S. was not part of the 200 countries that signed the pact. It promised to stop overseas financing of unabated fossil fuel use, but also absent from this pact were India and China that collectively account for about 67% of the world's coal demand. I'll stop there, but, but add one additional thing. OECD countries countries we think of as leading the energy transition. Japan is one. Japan has begun to rein in investing in foreign coal plants, but has continued to build coal-fired generation domestically. 
Over the next 10 years, the country expects to build 21 new coal-fired plants with a capacity of 12.5 gigawatts. So when the British Business and Energy Secretary said the end of coal is in sight, uh, perhaps he was looking through a telescope. Jim, I've known you for a while now, so I'm sure you also have an opinion on this. (laughs) Uh, You know me far too well, my friend. So China, Japan, and Korea committed to stop public financing coal generation outside of their own country. As Corey mentioned, Boris Johnson, the host prime minister for the Glasgow meetings, remarked, this will be the death knell to coal. And he took some abuse for that comment, as at the same time, he pushed off the decision to local authorities of the Cumbria coal mine. Now, to his defense, irony can be a bitter mistress. This particular coal mine is intended for thermal coal to help foster the reemergence of UK's steelmaking industry. Thermal coal has been exempted from the coal mandates of the Paris Agreement. 20 countries committed to building no new coal plants. Vietnam was one of the 20. It's unclear if Vietnam means no new coal plants after the 30 that they have announced permitted and or under construction from now until 2030. These 30 plants amount to 34,700 megawatts. They know their short power. They also know if they don't build these power plants, their economy will suffer and the industry that was to be built in Vietnam will simply move elsewhere. But what are their alternatives? I'll have some answers for you on that question in our next podcast. I also want to mention that hydrogen did have its stay in the spotlight. It was made clear by a couple of speakers that hydrogen is expensive and not very energy dense by volume. They went on to state that for hydrogen to become meaningful, a carbon trading market must evolve. Or paraphrased, make carbon more expensive and hydrogen will look better. Sister Margaret of St. Anne's Church pounded into my knuckles as a youth that just because you call someone ugly doesn't make you better looking. So, Corey, what are your thoughts on methane? <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Uh, the methane pledge. So, yes, over 100 countries signed the pledge to reduce methane emissions 30% by the year 2030. Okay. Let me start with this. The world's population is around 7.9 billion people and is currently growing at a rate of about 1.08% annually. Now, that growth rate will fall over time, but we are still very much in the middle of the S-curve, which means that by the year 2050, it is forecasted the world's population will be just under 10 billion people. If we're talking about anthropogenic or human-based climate change, then the mere addition of people to the world necessarily increases methane emissions. I won't be crude here. I'm talking about enteric fermentation, biological processes, both of the new additions to the world and the food they consume. Now, I get the focus on methane. It's 25 times more potent at trapping heat versus CO2 and is the second most abundant GHG after CO2. But it does, also doesn't hang around as long. So, yes, I get it as maybe a lower-hanging fruit than other GHGs. But the role seems to be in a perpetual food protein crisis, and that's not going to alleviate itself with an increase in population. So... As we think about global methane emissions believed to be around 60% due to human activity, and that 
30% of those emissions are due to enteric fermentation, then really, how low hanging actually is that methane fruit? And let's look at the U.S. since the data is a bit easier to get. I know what the focus is. It's on reducing methane from the fossil fuel industry. Okay, well, 30% of methane emissions comes from oil and gas, and 7% come from coal mining. So if we're reducing methane emissions by 30%, where are those cuts coming from? A wholesale shutdown of the ONG and coal industries in the U.S., um, and even the rest of the world. Uh, fossil fuels account for only 33% of methane emissions, and even energy transition fuels, biofuels, contribute 4% to global methane emissions. So with the population growth, I question methane reduction in general. Ignore that aspect, given what the sources of methane emissions are. I think that 30% is going to be probably an impossible goal to attain. Okay, ocean shipping also came up at the meetings. Jim, what was discussed about the Clyde Bank Declaration? So 22 countries signed as signatories to the Clyde Bank Declaration, literally on the banks of the River Clyde in Glasgow. I have to give COP26 credit for introducing the topic of green shipping, and even more importantly, including the governing body for shipping emissions, IMO, International Maritime Organization. As for the actual declaration, it starts with a lot of fluffy climate rhetoric before it lays out the idea, red non-binding, for six green shipping corridors by 2025. Now, the only definition we have for what is a green shipping corridor is, and I quote, taking steps to decarbonize the value chain, end quote. They did recognize that electrification of long-haul shipping is not feasible. There was some talk about green fuels. The three that came up were methanol. I wonder if they know that was made from natural gas. Liquid hydrogen and ammonia, again made from natural gas. Finally, as part of this declaration, several companies said they would only buy net zero carbon freight by 2040. Hmm. Names that highlighted this list were Amazon, Ikea, and Unilever. So, Corey, speaking of transportation, what do you think about COP26 results as it affects EVs? So... COP26 agreed to promote the acceleration of uptake of net zero emission vehicles. By 2040, the aim is that all sales of new light vehicles will be net zero in the world and that in leading markets, this goal will be met by 2035. Well, can you name the top two leading vehicle markets? What about the top five? China is number one, followed by the U.S. That's not a surprise. Uh, these two have annual sales numbers that largely dwarf every other country. Number three is Japan, four is Germany, and five is India. Guess who didn't sign the pledge? The top four. I mean, India signed it, but car sales there at around 3 million annually versus the U.S. at normally around 17 million and China over 20 million. Well, and for car manufacturers, there, there has to be a couple of things to consider. Incentives, regulations to produce net zero vehicles which I'm assuming will mainly be met through electric vehicles, and demand. Recently, IEA put out a report highlighting the expansion of electric vehicle sales last year. Now true, there was an expansion, but I think that just about every data point with 2020 needs to be taken with a grain of salt. And the announcement for the report did mention that the world now has 10 million electric cars on the road. Remember the annual sales numbers from earlier? 
I think that as we progress and talk about mobility, there are a number of other factors that play into the adoption of electric vehicles. And yes, net zero vehicles could be through other means, maybe hydrogen vehicles, but refer back to our previous podcast on this. Basically, do you want to see more fuel trucks on roads supplying stations and for those trucks to be able to wipe out a city block if they're involved in an accident? Yeah. The global governmental response to COVID-19 structurally reshaped how we approach work and how different groups of people view different things. Now, prior to the pandemic, we often analyzed millennials as a group that eschewed owning homes and preferred public transportation ride-sharing over owning personal vehicles. On a personal vehicle front, there's always been talk about the millennials as, millennials as climate crusaders. But really, I would say that the percentage ownership was less due to climate concerns and more due with expense and the hassle of car ownership. But now we've moved to this area where having your own vehicle and avoid being around people you don't know seems more attractive. But where work from home, hybrid working, perhaps limit driving, but also where more and more people, at least in the U.S., are moving to more rural areas and are to states that don't have the type of public transportation infrastructure in place from those locales that they're moving from. Okay. Now, let's just let's take a trip down an anecdotal road. I live in the fourth largest city in the U.S., and it is growing. I live over 30 miles away from downtown, and many new people from my surrounding area moved here from California. I'm a weird person. I like technology. I can code in Python. I like to use technological tools to accomplish work tasks. But I don't have any non-work social media. No Facebook, Instagram, any of that. I've been tinkering with learning the guitar, but I didn't like all the bells and whistles of a Stratocaster, so I bought a Tele. I think Tesla's not any other electric vehicles, are cool, but I own a very large SUV. And I think pertaining to the last point and living in one of the largest automobile markets in the world, I'm not so weird. I have a family and typically drive longer distances to get where I need to go. I don't like going to gas stations or paying for gasoline, but for the size of the vehicle I drive, it's actually very efficient. I know that charging infrastructure is being built out, <clears throat> but I have no interest in sitting at any type of fuel station for any more than a few minutes to fuel up my vehicle. I don't care if it's a restaurant or a theater or whatever. I just don't want to have to have my mobility restricted. If I want to leave, I want to leave, not wait around on a charge. And I don't want to have to worry about plugging in my vehicle at night. I may not forget, but my wife will. And I used to very much think that families would adopt a two-vehicle system, one for longer trips and then the grocery getter short-range vehicle that could easily be an electric. But I think post-COVID, for many families, families, this is unnecessary. I mean, truth be told, if my second vehicle wasn't paid for, I would strongly consider becoming a one-vehicle family. We use the SUV for everything. And for the times we need to go to separate places, I think ride-sharing could fill the gap. So electric vehicle adoption in the second largest vehicle market in the U.S. is questionable at best, especially given this, this. The top-selling light vehicle in the U.S., Ford F-150. Second, Ram Pickup. And third, Chevrolet Silverado. Though the three have become more efficient over the years, and there is now an electric F-150, net zero vehicles in leading markets by 2035 still seems questionable. Also, finally, a final point here. Those of us in the industry understand this, but hypothetically, if EV uptake increased dramatically, battery costs, economical, people like the offered models and all that. Though perhaps a smaller part of the oily puzzle, but the petrochemicals used to make the plastics used in electric vehicles will still be in demand. Uh, mining for the rare earths, etc., does not tend to be the most green. And disposal of batteries perhaps finds the way into stationary power storage, but how large that market be? These things we have thought through, but what about the issues we haven't? 
you know, just think about like when ethanol um, led to greater clearing of the rainforest to uh, plant sugarcane. So, Jim, I know you're a bit of a motorhead. What was your takeaway from the meetings on cars? Warning, warning, Brian, do not quote any motorhead lyrics. <sighs> okay. So 22 countries committed to 100% of new car sales to be zero emissions by 2035. Other than the Vatican, I'm not sure how many countries will make that happen. U.S. was definitely not a signatory on that one. Prior to COP26, President Biden claimed that half of new car sales in the U.S. will be electric by 2030. It's important to note here that this definition of electric has expanded to hybrid vehicles, both plug-in hybrids and full hybrids. One half of new car sales in the year 2030 will be something like 9 million cars sold. Even with the addition of hybrids, this number seems wildly aggressive. So here's some numbers. The 2020 numbers are from the Department of Energy. 14,114,000 cars and light trucks were sold in 2020. 761,200 were electric. And here's the breakdown on that. 240,000 were BEV, battery electric vehicles, meaning power from propulsion was solely from the battery. 66,200 were plug-in hybrids. This was once the path, but clearly not anymore. And 454,900 were hybrid vehicles, meaning power for propulsion was from a smaller internal combustion engine and a much larger battery than a lead-acid battery, but significantly smaller than a BEV, BEV battery. Hybrid batteries get power from regenerative braking. So let's do some quick math. 761,200 divided by 14.1 million gives you about 5.4%. For 2021, the numbers from the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis look like this and are obviously estimated as this recording is in mid-December. The U.S. is estimated to sell 13.3 million vehicles with 580,000 being electric. That's about 4.4%. For anyone listening to this in the future, don't pay a whole lot of attention to the percentage decrease. Availability was a huge issue in 2021. Anyway, roughly 5% is a long way from 50%. An analyst speaking at COP26 suggested there will be 21 million electric vehicles on U.S. roads by 2030. There are currently 5.8 million at the end of 2020. Out of roughly 253 million, total fleet of cars and light trucks. For what it's worth, there's another 30 million registered vehicles on top of the 253 million motorcycles, medium heavy-duty trucks, construction vehicles, and the like. Of that 5.8 million electric vehicles, about 2 million are BEVs, with the balance of 3.8 million being hybrids. For those following the math, the U.S. needs to sell almost triple its 2020 sales of electric vehicles, which was a record, to get to around 1.9 million electric vehicles sold every year to get to the 21 million. And that's even assuming small to no retirements. Extrapolating that model, 21 million cars in 2030 will be less than 10% of all vehicles on the road. And that, my friends, is nowhere even near the zip code 
of 9 million electric vehicles sold a year. The numbers just don't add up. So, Corey, climate finance was a big feature of the meetings. Did they accomplish anything? Well, money makes things happen and is always a critical concern with anything energy. Otherwise, we would have already retired all fossil fuels and moved on to something we perceive as greener. But where the developed countries can perhaps more easily influence what happens in their borders, something we talked about earlier, developing countries that are in need of energy can't just use the greenest appearing energy to power their economies. Never mind land use and all the, the physical aspects. The Paris Agreement, formed during COP21, resolved to achieve a goal of providing $100 billion annually by last year, by 2020, to promote COP21's goals. Well, less than 80% of what was achieved, of that was achieved in 2019, and it is highly doubtful, we don't have the numbers yet, it's highly doubtful that it was achieved in 2020. This goal was to be met by 2020 and sustained through 2025. So $100 billion by 2020, and then each year through 2025. Uh, nevertheless, Developed countries pledged to, one, deliver on the $100 billion through 2025, and two, agree to a more ambitious goal post-2025. And in other news, I've agreed with myself to lose 30 pounds this month. Now, there was also an agreement to provide more through the Adaptation Fund, uh, $356 million in new support. But looking at the projected cost for climate mitigation slash energy transition across the world, uh, agreed upon financing, notwithstanding what actually gets paid, is wholly inadequate to meet COP26's goals. So let me say this. Even if the money was there, there are still issues with the labor force to, for example, build greener power facilities, shortages of suitable land for construction in some places, technology constraints, and the unknowns. But the simple fact is the money is not there. And again, with no enforcement mechanism in the world for any of this, it makes the goals very elusive to meet. We will continue to see energy transition in the world. We've seen it over history. But I like to think of COP26 as one of those car shows that the manufacturers put on with futuristic but impractical vehicles. Uh, those that will ultimately see some of the technology go into production, but where a lot of the concepts just fall by the wayside. With that, Jim, why don't you bring us home? So COP26 certainly had its share of disappointments from just about every faction. Where some will view these disappointments as failures, I do not. Listening to some of the commentary after the fact, it is obvious the world is still trying to figure out the scope and scale of this undertaking called energy transition. The pointing of fingers, green platitudes to create a nice soundbite, and exclusionary tactics are a path to irrelevancy. Energy transition is a noble effort. It needs to be managed by leaders from all constituents who understand the virtues of character and can cast aside the advisors with an obvious agenda. Thanks, Jim. And until next time, thanks everyone for tuning in.